0: Okay, can you hear me, like people in the back and everything, we got a little microphone going, see, we learned lessons from last time, alright, um, okay, well, since this is about scripture, uh, how about I read some, and that's that's how we'll, that's how we'll begin, so here we go, Th- this comes from Second Timothy, and let's listen carefully because this is the word of God, so, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, um, when I was in college, I, I went to this um, breakout session at a conference. And, uh, and it was called... Um, how, it, it posed the question, how can we know that the Bible is true? And I sat down, and I was ready to get, uh, take all these notes. And the guy just kept... Yeah, this is how I take notes. Just, in, It is with a crayon, and, and it's very illegible. Uh, and so I'm ready, and he just starts reading me verses. Not just me. I mean, there were other people there. It wasn't just the two of us and some... So... Uh, so he starts going through all these verses, and I was like this this is the cheapest breakout session of this entire conference like he 's just he 's reading scripture to me, and that 's a circular argument like that that can 't stand and really that, for the most part, that was arrogance on on my part but but also I mean w- the conversation is is pretty long standing what What is scripture?" What is the purpose of Scripture? What is the nature of Scripture? Where does it come from? What, what, are we, what are we trying to accomplish when we read the Scriptures? I mean, all of these questions. And for many of you, many of you, you are believing Christians. And so you see the Bible in some sense as authoritative in some way. Because as a Christian, you are, you are aligning yourself with Christ who is revealed... In the scriptures, so if you consider yourself to be a Christian, then, then this is a really big question for you to ask, and, and this is the question of, of the night: Is can I trust my Bible? Now, to, just in case you've got somewhere to be, the answer is going to be yes. Uh, so, if you have to leave at the break or anything like, yes, you can trust your Bible. Now, we're going to we're going to kind of break that down as to why and and what the implications are but that is really the, the goal question of the night now also to set a couple of other objectives out there like Joel said this has to do with worship I mean the end goal is devotion to God and confidence in God that's, that is, that's where this is headed this is not so we can become better arguers um, I mean we could we could do that uh, I don't know how profitable that would be. Um, the The objective is not that we um, can look at a whole bunch of different verses and I see this issue here and this issue here and try, try and work that out. That at least, That's not it tonight. Now, that doesn't mean that those aren't good pursuits or necessary pursuits, but that's not our objective tonight. But really it is to look at the canon itself, what is Scripture, and then to, to move through and look at what is the nature of Scripture? What has what God made the Scripture to be? And then what is the overall purpose of that Scripture? So that's where we're, that's where we're headed. Um, so if you've got a notebook and that kind of thing, it, it will probably be helpful because I'm, I'm going to try my best to, to move quickly through some of these things because like Joel uh, going through Romans at the next one, we bite off more than we can chew. Like Every time we, we come to these things. But that's because at the end of this, I'm not going to stand up and say, and that's all there is to say about the Bible. Like That's not going to happen because that's stupid. So, this is the beginning of a conversation. And for some of you, you've been in this conversation for a long time, and so it picks up much later on. You, you know the terms. You, you know a, a lot of the conversation. Who's saying what? And names of theologians and all that kind of stuff. And for others, you know, we're we're coming into this very fresh on the scene and and just wanting to know, you know, how do I go to the Scriptures in devotion to God and trust Him and and press in to know Him? So, with respect to where all of us might fall in this, um, we're going to begin with the canon of Scripture. So, like many things, we, we go back to Moses. Um, So Moses, good guy, uh, intelligent guy. I I mean, he is trained up in the finest of schools in Egypt. I mean, he he gains this ability uh, to know literature and to write. And so it has always gone back that the uh, five books of Moses. Now, the five books of Moses are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's known as the Torah or the law the teaching. And this is what Moses is, is responsible for, to, to have written. Now, there are parts in that, of course, like where you know Moses dying or something like that, where didn't write... You know, but, just because that's difficult. Um, but you know, the, this, the scope of, of this, the five books of Moses, go back to Moses himself. God has called this man that, that has walked through so much of this history but at the same time is inspired to talk about things that he was not present for. Now a lot of that would be oral tradition that was passed down and that he was was responsible for writing down. But this is the first time God's Word is written down. We see that beginning at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments where God writes the law for the people. And Moses is responsible for handling that and taking that to the people. So already... Something that we see from Moses is that God desires to communicate with humankind. And that's key. I mean that that I mean if we're going to talk about scripture, we have to first recognize that you know there is a God and that he wants to communicate with his created people. And so Moses is charged with writing the Torah. Genesis Exodus, Leviticus numbers, and Deuteronomy, following that we get we get Joshua that's uh, the successor to to Moses um, and then then we move we, we have Ruth, where we get the ancestry of, of David now some of these this is going to be this is going to mess with some some order and everything as we kind of look through these things, but um, we have to see how these things are are broken down, and so maybe what would be most beneficial is for us to see how the Jewish people break down, still to this day, how they break down the Hebrew canon, the Tanakh. Okay? That's a fun one. You get to make the whole uh, Tanakh. Okay. So Tanakh, the T in Tanakh is Torah, like I just talked about, what Moses is in charge of writing. And then we get the Nevi'im. That's the prophets. From that we get the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuels, often not broken into 1 and 2, but Samuel's uh, Samuel. Then Kings, same thing, 1 and 2. The latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the twelve, twelve prophets. Then we get uh, the Ketuvim. Those are the writings. That's where we get the, the poetry, the three poetical books, the Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. The historical books, Daniel, Ezra and Nehemiah, which were sometimes linked, and Chronicles one and two, and then the five rolls. In the five rolls, we get Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. These twenty-four books of the Hebrew canon that was clearly understood uh, to be closed and authoritative. I mean, as these as these writings came, as the, as especially with the, with the prophets, as they came and they were. They were writing these letters and they were declaring these things. The canon really was defining itself. Now, as God would speak through the prophets, and so they would recognize these men as the mouthpieces of God, thus saith the Lord, which you see all over the Old Testament. And and, um, I don't know if I have a count of this. I think it's somewhere in the 500s of how many times in the Torah what moses was in charge of you get thus says the lord the lord says this and so they firmly believed as they were looking at the torah the navim and the ketuvim the tanakh the hebrew canon that they were looking at the words of god and the word of god was being declared to them now there are other writings and i've i've got one back at the office um where I was at Books a Million, and, and I was looking at the Bible section, and, uh, and if you're like the heir to the Books a Million thing, this is not against you or anything like that. I know they're Birmingham-based, so just in case that's you. Anyway, so the, the books that are there, the, you've got a wide selection of Bibles there. I mean, you've got like the big, white, hardback family Bible, which I like to carry around, uh, and, and then you've got like little pocket size, and you've got the Psalms and the New Testament. I mean, there's so many different texts of the Bible. In fact, when I was, my, my very first job here in Birmingham, a uh, guy that I worked with, he, we were talking about how I was going to start going to, to, to seminary, and he said, you know, I, I'd like to believe that the Bible is true, but which one? Which Bible? Like, essentially thinking that, you know, there's the NIV Bible, there's the ESV Bible, and and you know to some extent he's he's on to something, because when I was just flipping through one of the Bibles, all of a sudden I'm I'm at Books a Million reading from the Book of Tobit. I'm reading from First Maccabees. You know this was a this was a Catholic Bible that carried with it the Apocrypha. And so really, uh, and and I'd. I'd like to point out a couple dates I think I've got them here I'm just going to go through some of the the last the the later uh, prophet writings so with Ezekiel we're right around 593 to 571 BC and then Daniel 606 to 536 BC Haggai 520 Zechariah 520 and Malachi 435, ish. Okay, so so 435 is where we get this last writing of a prophet, and then these other writings start happening, and these writings really go for quite some time, um, from around 200 to I mean some things even after like some things can be even counted as 100 AD. I mean so there there's a, there are a lot of writings that are still happening. In, that some are attributing to the Old Testament. Now you, you might have heard of some of these books before. Um, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, that's Esther 104 uh, through 24. the Book of Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, uh, Barak, uh, Son of the Three Children, or Song of the Three Children, uh, which is added to Daniel. The story of Susanna added to Daniel. I love this title the most. Baal and the Dragon. Who wouldn't? I mean, that sounds good. But, you know, not canonical. Uh, so, Baal and the Dragon, also added to Daniel. I mean, if you're going to put Baal and the Dragon, it's going to go in Daniel. Uh, and so that's added as Daniel 14. Um, and then you've got the Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, uh, also recognized like. Third, fourth Maccabees, where you have the story of Hanukkah, uh, you know, the Maccabean revolt. And so all all of these writings start happening. And it at first um, it's kind of se- separate. You know, they're, they're not clearly not viewing that as the Old Testament canon, like the Tanakh. But some people start recognizing it. And and, and when you get the Septuagint, which is the the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's included in that. And so there are a lot of people that that were seeing that as Scripture, as the Word of God. And so we really have to to deal with this as Christians, because if we're going to say that we believe in the Scriptures, and we're going to really focus in and say that if I disobey Scripture, that I'm disobeying God, if there are books that belong in there that aren't, that aren't in your Bible, that matters. So we have to ask this question, what about the Apocrypha? Okay. So, what I think the best way that we can get at this question is to ask this other question. Did Jesus see the Apocrypha as authoritative or as essentially as scripture did Jesus see that because the Septuagint was was a widely used translation of the Tanakh that that was circulating at, at, at his time, and so if it 's circulating, did he recognize did he use that did he in studying you know he 's studying isaiah he 's studying these different sections of scripture did he view The Apocrypha as the Word of God, and so here is what I think is an interesting. It's one way. It's one way to approach this and to think through this question, and that is, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke eleven. And if you don't have a Bible, try and find someone that's got one, or use your. If you've got one of the magic phones, use a magic phone. Fancy magic phones. For those of you that are using a magic phone, you're already there, so I'll start reading. Those of you with those old book things, you'll catch up. Luke 11. Now now Luke, uh, this is a gospel writing. This is New Testament. Uh, This is a record of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to look to that in, in hopes of maybe gaining a better understanding of answering this question, did Jesus see the Apocrypha as canon, as authoritative Scripture? Look at verse 49. Verse 49. All right. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Okay. So, (laughs) Jesus is saying some very intense stuff there. Um, But one of the things he's talking about is that, that the the killing of these prophets, prophets, the, the men speaking on behalf of God, and God speaking through these men, these men that were killed, that their blood, that there will be a generation charged with their blood. And so Jesus is declaring this. And, and one of the things that he says to give the scope of it is from Abel to Zechariah. Abel to Zechariah. Now Abel killed in Genesis 4, okay? So Genesis, you know, beginning. But who is this Zechariah? Okay, if you really want to get fancy and turn with me to 2nd Chronicles chapter 24. 2nd Chronicles 24. Who is this Zechariah? We know Abel Cain, Abel, we know, we know his death. That's easily recognizable to the ear. But, but who is this Zechariah? Second Chronicles 24. Starting with verse 20. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people, and he said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord? so that you cannot prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. But they conspired against Him. And by command of the king, they stoned him with the stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge Zechariah. Second Chronicles. Not the last prophet to be killed. The last prophet to be killed is found in Jeremiah. And that's Uriah. Uriah, the, the son of Shema, Shemaiah. Awesome. Okay, so Uriah is the last one. We see that in, in Jeremiah. But Jesus is referring not to Uriah, chronologically the last one killed. He refers instead to Zechariah. Why? Because, as as I um, was talking through just a minute ago with the Ketuvim, as we see see the Hebrew canon in its form that the, the Jews had it, which is different than than some of our order. 2 Chronicles was the end. Or Chronicles was the end. And so Jesus is saying from Genesis to Chronicles and all the prophets in between, their blood, their debts, the generation will be charged with that. And so instead of of appealing to the chronological order of these things, he's, He's appealing to the canon. And in doing so, He gives this this little window, and through this window we can see how Jesus was looking at the canon of Scripture. Now, other issues come into the Apocrypha, such as teaching wild theological things that the rest of Scripture doesn't talk about, or that we know who the author is and it doesn't align with the order of something like Esther or Daniel. Or we don't know who the author is, and it says crazy things like that. I mean, it, and so it's from this, from the Apocrypha that bad theology started making its way into the church. And so then we come to the problem of the Apocrypha and the Reformation. You see, the first person to take the Apocrypha out of the translation was the big man himself, Martin Luther. Um, so so he removes it and he still translated it. He still he still said like there there are valuable qualities to this, but it is not the authoritative scripture. And also what you get out of that are things like prayer prayers for the dead, you know, purgatory. I mean these are things that are appealed to in things like Tobit and other areas of the apocrypha. And so as this translation started moving as as you know as it went into the the Greek, and then went into the Latin. And then ultimately, we zoom, zoom out and we see the re- time of the Reformation. I mean, for, for a considerable amount of time, the church was still translating and in some senses looking at the Apocrypha as Scripture. Yet, the Jews at that time were not doing that. I and mean, the Jews did not view that as the Holy Scriptures. Okay. Okay. Because of time, we have to move fairly quickly. Um, Jerome, who uh, he, he's the trans, he translated the scriptures into Latin. He, he said this, and this is in the, uh, the Church of England's uh, the 39 articles. Uh, they, they're quoting Jerome that says that the, church, the church can read the Apocrypha for, for uh, instruction of manners or example of life, but it is not to be something that we would establish doctrine on or that we would see as authoritative as the Scriptures themselves. Now, I'm I'm belaboring this, I know, but if, again, we are going to say that we submit ourselves to the Scriptures, we need to know what they are. And we need to know what is not. Now, even the ESV has a version that has the Apocrypha. It's something beneficial to read in more of a historical sense but not in line with Scripture. There is some biblical society, I'm forgetting at what point this is, I mean, clearly it's after the Reformation. They said, if it's not Scripture, the Apocrypha, it's not worth our money printing it. And so that was actually one of the major decisions in saying, well, it's just not even going to be like an appendix. It's not going to be in the back. Is because it costs money to print these Bibles that we're trying to get into the hands of, of people so why would, we, why would we spend the money on that so interesting little point in that if you want uh, to know more about the apocrypha and what some of the, the chapters talk about and, and what they are a great book on that is How We Got the Bible by Ralph Earl it's a solid name uh, I, I feel like I think I saw him in Nashville um, but How We Got the Bible it's a really great book it gives really concise little snippets of, of the process of translation and transmission and, and, and the Apocrypha and how, how we came to um, see our canon the way that we have. So, All right, so we break into this time between the Testaments. And so, I mean, how, how important is it for us to see, like, the canon is closed. The Jewish people, they see it as closed and they, they revere it and they, they're studying it And then all of a sudden, like, even the concept of a New Testament, I mean, I think we take that for granted. Like, that anyone would say that a new writing could be authoritative scripture. Like, something huge must have happened for any Jew to say at that time, that, like, that record, that's authoritative. And I don't don't know, I know I don't always see that. I don't don't know about you. But I, I don't think about that when I'm looking at the New Testament. Like, it's huge that it doesn't just stop with Malachi. And then we just have oral tradition or something going about this Jesus. But there are holy scriptures written because the Messiah that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament is revealed in this New Testament, in these words of Holy Scripture. So we'll move to that, and, and I'll give a... My goodness, more than I can chew. More than you can chew. More than all of us can chew. Okay, so the New Testament. Uh, writings begin right around 40 A.D. With, uh, with more than likely with James. And then moving to Galatians, Paul starts, starts writing his missionary letters. I mean he, he is on the field or in prison. Like that's kind of it's one or the other for the most part. So he's out there traveling to these churches. And so it, it's amazing that, that really these early writings for the church, before we even get to gospel accounts, begins with these missionary letters to churches. I mean what what a treasure to, to hear these words of someone that's actually out there ministering. That that's that's our our kind of our first our first word our, our first dispatch from the field, these letters of Paul, Thessalonians, then we get mark's gospel around fifty three fifty five a d Matthew writes his paul with uh, his letters to the Corinthians from Ephesus and then Macedonia in fifty seven I love this language Paul winters in Corinth, um, and he writes Romans it's just an easy an easy winter, just pound in Romans out. Uh, so, uh, 60 to 70 we get the, the letter to the Hebrews. 62 through 63 um, Peter writes his first letter from Rome. 62, Paul arrives in Rome and remains under house arrest and while under house arrest he writes Ephesians, then Philippians Colossians Philemon. Then we get Luke you know, so we got house arrest Luke's just hanging out <laughs> um, and he's busy that, that entire time. I mean, he's got two years hanging out. He's a Gentile hanging out in this kind of you know, unknown area. And what does he do? He interviews everyone he can who knows Jesus. Like, you met him. You, you heard him teach. Like, you, you spent time with him. What was it like? I mean, one would imagine? I mean, imagine Luke sitting down with Mary and saying, tell me what it was like When he was born. See, we're going to get to inspiration, but in that, like, inspiration is is all a part of God also utilizing what these authors have experienced in in researching and knowing and having these conversations with men and women and gaining a a better and clearer understanding of the events that took place in Jesus' life. We've got to move. 62-64, 62-64, uh, so that's where you get Luke and Acts written by, by Luke. Um, the majority of the New Testament right there, Luke-Acts, not Paul. So, 62-64, you get 1 Timothy, Titus. Um, 64-67, Peter writes his second letter. Um, Jude writes his letter. We get Paul with 2 Timothy. And then Peter and Paul are martyred in Rome. 67... This is when uh, you know the uh, Jerusalem is about to be ransacked and overturned. Uh, the temple will be destroyed all of that that 's where you get the Qumran community with their scrolls hiding those in a cave before everything gets destroyed and burned, um, which the i mean that whole area the, the amount of uh, digging and the stuff that they found there long tables with ink wells still you know still present where they would have rolled out these long scrolls and copied the text. We have so much. Okay, so. um, 85 to 95, John writes his letters first. 2nd, 3rd John, probably in Ephesus. 89 to 95, John writes his Gospel. And then 95, 96, he is exiled and writes Revelation. So there, the New Testament writers in pretty fast and furiously, I mean, turn out. All, like when, especially when you look at a thousand years to get the Old Testament, and right here from 40 to 96 A.D., New Testament writings. Now, yes, there are other writings that are happening, and even some of them that are recognized by the church as beneficial and edifying like they, as they circulated. But in this time, um, people weren't deciding the canon it, it was it was surfacing in a sense, like God was, was protecting letters, circulating letters, and bringing them to the top. To where, when, um, when in three sixty seven, Athanasius lists the twenty seven books of the New Testament as the full canon. That's that's for us the the first time we see like this this written down order, and then in the Council of Carthage. In 397, that's when you get the East and the Western church agreeing in what the, the canon of the New Testament is. Now, there's a lot of turmoil, but it, we don't get this Dan Brown moment where all these guys are sitting around and they're like, we've really got to nail this down. Like, anybody, Hebrews, you feel good about that one? Let's do up or down vote. Like, that, that's not happening. Like, they're, they're, these letters have circulated and then at this time, they are agreed upon as the full canon of scripture. Um, amazing stories about the manuscripts. Um, I mean, just the the stories out there of of a young boy who's lost a goat, like you do every day. You know, he he loses his goat. He's looking around. He throws a rock in a cave, as we all would do if we lost a goat, and he hears. A shattering sound, and that is a jar, this large pottery holding the Dead Sea Scrolls, what, is, what are referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, these scrolls that, I mean, the, the dates on them of, of Isaiah and all, just every Old Testament book is a scrap or a piece of scroll is present in one of the caves, except for Esther. But all the other ones are, they're present. It, and and that, that's an amazing testimony to the Old Testament canon. Um, now, with, with the copying, I mean, the, the tedious work of, of these people as they're copying these manuscripts. Um, also, there's no separation between words. Like, I, I got to see some very old manuscripts uh, at the British Library three years ago, hoping to see them again next week. Um, but in at the british library the, these these manuscripts are just it 's amazing, but all capital letter Greek letters I was in the thick of you know, studying Greek. I was with a professor i don 't say his name cause it, okay I was with a professor, and he was having a hard time. I had no chance like I was just like, those are pretty letters like they're really they, that looks awesome. But he was having a hard time deter- like seeing like, where does one word end and where the next one begin. And, I mean, it's so complicated. So they were copying these down, and some of these manuscripts of the, of the New Testament and Old Testament, they were done by ear. Like someone would sit in the middle, and you have a room of maybe less than 70 people or so. I mean, imagine if I started reading this manuscript, and you were letter by letter writing it down, letter after letter after letter... Is there the possibility that maybe one of you might get a little bit confused at what I've said? I'm going to say there's a chance. And so that's where you do see what I refer to as textual variance. And that happens in the manuscripts that we have, these very old manuscripts. You know, a letter off here, a space here. I mean, numbers varying from place to place. And those are so, so numerous, but also so minute. I mean the the vast majority of these textual variants are so minor, and maybe a letter off here or something changed there, or a church had a copy of Ephesians, and when they were writing it out because they were reading it to their own church they didn't they didn't put to the church in Ephesus, like they just said to you guys because we're not in Ephesus, and so you know they and, and then the next one the next copy made might not have. Ephesus in it, but with the thousands of manuscripts that we have, it is phenomenal how much they agree. Phenomenal. And we have more scraps of papyrus to to goat skin, to all these different things to testify as close as possible to the original, what are often called the autographs, the original manuscripts of Scripture. It is amazing. There, There is no other ancient document has anywhere close. I mean, we're looking like from 1,000 copies to some ancient Roman history that's built upon 20 copies. I mean, it is phenomenal. And, and we, can, we can talk about these things later, but we now have over 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament in whole or part. And from that, we can, we can trace, like when they move. Like you, can, you can look at a map and see how these... These different letters moved throughout the early church, and to see oh that's where that's where this problem came in, that's where this problem came in, because they're copies of, of a copy of a copy of a copy. And the amazing thing is that the more copies we have, the better the testimony we have to what the authentic original manuscript would have said. And to me, I, that that is just a phenomenal, staggering act of God's providence to keep his word protected through all this. It's, it really is amazing when, when you get into to the study of it. So, um, we can talk about that more if we, if we need to. So, oh, alright, what do we mean uh, when we're talking about the nature of Scripture? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit a couple of points here pretty quickly, and then uh, I imagine we'll unpack this with question time. So, First off, the inspiration of Scripture. What do we what do we mean when we say that it is inspired? Okay, the inspiration. God utilized the culture and conventions of the penman's milieu, a milieu that God controls in His sovereign prov- providence, and that in that He guards against misinterpretation to imagine otherwise. Like so, essentially, what that means is God breathes that that 's what in Second in Timothy what we see is that God has breathed his word in inspiring the author not just like an artist is inspired like this this kind of passion or desire to to create, but that he has given the words and the meaning of his holy Word to these authors. They were inspired by God because we 're saying scripture is God communicating with His people. Therefore, He must be the genesis of this information, the genesis of this meaning conveyed to us. They must be inspired by God. And again, not just like in this passion or desire to create, like someone's inspired to paint a picture or to write a song, but that they are inspired by God Himself that He breathes out through His Spirit. He has breathed out His Word to these authors as they penned these original autographs so that's it uh, second timothy 316 all, skip- all scripture is inspired by god breathed out uh, Theonoustos breathed out by god inspiration means that scripture was breathed out by god into these human minds by the holy spirit scripture is the spirit breathed expression of god's word to us second peter Chapter 1, verse 21. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the the Holy Spirit. Being born along by the Holy Spirit, men spoke from God. The idea of the inspiredness of Scripture is a biblical truth. Now, all of these terms connect with each other. So... Inspiration leads into the infallibility, the issue of the trustworthiness of Scripture. How do we trust the words of Scripture? Well, because they are breathed out by the Holy Spirit, that He carried along the author to write these Scriptures. And so because of that, because of that interaction between God and the writer, that is the infallible work of God. That he would be true and would not mislead or lead to error as he is conveying this to the author. Now, we do have to keep in mind, and this is one very quick story Bradley Byrne, running for governor, not anymore, but he was. Um, but there's this big charge against him that Bradley Byrne does not believe in the Bible as true. And that whole thing had to do with a, a statement. He was given a yes or no question of, do you believe the Bible is literally true? Yes or no? By a newspaper in Mobile. He didn't want to answer it. He, was, he emailed them and was like, that is not really just like a yes or no question. That's a, that's a literary question. I mean, that's a genre question. And he said, he, he, so that was his answer. And they said, well, his ambiguous answer, like, man, that really kind of great story there. And so then, Byrne is at a Piggly Wiggly and he's... No one. No one's surprised by this. Okay, so he's at a Piggly Wiggly. It's actually a press conference. He's taking questions. He's getting this endorsement. Yeah, press conference. Yeah, well, wouldn't you? So he's there at a press conference, and someone says, what about this whole thing that you don't believe the Bible is true? So he's defending it and all of that. Emails start going out from churches. Don't shop at Piggly Wiggly. Like, they're aligning themselves with this guy that doesn't believe the Bible. Like, crazy things are happening. So all of this happens. And all of this because how we use and how we define these terms it changes our conversation like we have to be very clear with the, with the words that we're choosing to use here because if you have a definition and I have a definition and they don't match up but we're going to use the same word that's going to be problematic and so we have to be very careful with defining these terms so inspiration then that moves to infallibility and with that infallibility we do recognize and, and there was this uh, meeting in the 70s in Chicago. and it was, they, they drafted the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. All right? And from that, just a very brief word, the history must be treated as history, poetry as poetry, hyperbole as, and metaphor as hyperbole and metaphor, generalization, approximation as what they are, and so forth. Differences between literary conventions in Bible times and in ours must be observed. So we have to recognize the genre in which it was written, the time that it was written, and that God was breathing to these individuals on purpose. Like with their milieu and, and with David as he wrote the Psalms or with Solomon, like at these different times, he's he's breathing this out purposefully. And it is not with the intention to lead us to, to error, to mislead us in any way. So, the infallibility. in. Infallible signifies the quality of neither misleading nor being misled. And so safeguards in categorical terms the truth that Holy Scripture is sure, safe, and reliable rule and guide in all matters. So there's our definition. A sub-issue that comes into play there is the issue of inerrancy. That's a textual issue. Okay, Infallibility, we're talking about the authors, we're talking about God, we're talking about the original autographs, the original writings. Infallibility really has its genesis in that place. then inerrancy to the text of were there any mistakes that were made in the text. Now with this, we have this supreme opportunity. Um, This author, uh, Snyder, I believe is her last name, has this wonderful way of saying it that with these terminologies, we can get lost in the labyrinth of theological terms and miss the point Completely that God is true. You see? And that His Word given to us does not lead us to error, but leads us, the Spirit in the Scriptures leading us to all truth. And God is no mixture of error, but He is pure and true. So, if we have inspiration, it's inspired by God, that it's true and trustworthy the things that He has said, And then that moves us to authority. That the Scriptures are authoritative. So what do we mean when we say authoritative? We affirm that Scripture is the inspired and infallible Word of God and is therefore to be trusted and obeyed. If the Scriptures are disobeyed, we are indeed disobeying God Himself. Scripture is authoritative for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness. I love this phrase that when we submit to Christ. If we refuse or reject a submission to the Scriptures, we indeed are not submitting to Christ. See, that is the objective here. Discipleship. And in that discipleship, what Joel talked about earlier, worship, honor, praise to God. That we would read these things and we would submit. One last kind of personal thing and, and um, we'll, we'll take a, a break here in just a second. I was at a wedding, and we were all talking at the reception. And this girl was—we're we talking about weddings and all the cliche, you know, verses that always get thrown out. And, um, and she said, "I, you know, I really, I, when it comes, especially to to things about marriage and submission, I, I really just, I can't read Paul. I don't like it, so I don't read it. You see, that." that puts us in the driver's seat of authority. Okay? See, when we recognize the authority of Scripture, what we're saying is the problem is not in the stars, the the problem is not in the Scriptures, the problem is in me. See, I have the ability to err constantly. And that's my biggest concern in this, and even getting up in front of you to talk about these things, the authority of Scripture, the purity of Scripture, all of these things, is because I can err, and I do constantly but God does not because He is pure and perfect and holy. You see, that's the holiness, that He is other. See, I'm unholy, subject to error, constantly. And so, if, But if we put ourselves in the driver's seat and we say that I determine truth, which is quite popular in, in, our, in our age, that I determine truth, and you might read something in your Bible and it leads you to this kind of truth, I read this kind of truth, and, and we have these differences. Ultimately, what we're saying is that we submit to the Word of God because we are submitting to God. And that is the authority of Scripture. It is not generated solely in the text itself, but from God Himself. We're not deifying the text, but we're seeing the work of the Spirit, the testimony to the Son, and the providence and and sovereign hand of God protecting His Word for His people. So... um, we didn't get to, to the revelatory text and all of that. We'll, 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 I'll hit on a few of those things before we get into questions. But at this time, stretch, do jumping jacks, buy lots of things. A huge, huge thank you to Urban Standard before we go any further. Buy lots of things. And tip, tip, be kind. All right, we'll see you back here in uh, 10 minutes. Uh, so I am going to go over a couple of things just to fin- just to, just to close out, nice, nice and neatly. So, a couple of things. Um, one, canon. Uh, I realize that s- sometimes I'm saying things that don't make sense. So, um, that's my problem, not yours. So, canon as as the rule or the standard. Like that's the that's the scope of the scriptures, the books that belong to the canon. What is uh, decidedly the canon of scripture. So that's the rule of scripture. Uh, and so that, those are the limitations uh, to the Scriptures. Um, another thing, Reformation was around 1500, 1550. Like, that's, that's the time of Martin Luther. So really the Apocrypha, which Apocrypha means hidden. Uh, that, that's, that's really, like, around, you know, ge- those are the general things there. So, like, that, that's kind of what's happening there. Um, and then uh, a, a few more things on authority of Scripture, and then I'll wrap up uh, with Revelation real fast. So, um, when, we, when we are trying to ask these kinds of questions about the authority and the infallibility and the inspiration of Scripture, we do have to recognize that we see through lenses in our culture, in our society, that we didn't necessarily put in front of our faces. Meaning that our culture, that we were born into, or that we have, you know, become accustomed to, there are certain viewpoints and worldviews that we did not ask for, but are there. And like I was saying with the postmodern thought of when it comes to issues of relative truth or the question of any any truth in existence, um, that when we say canon and we're looking at rule or standard, we're saying that. That scripture is a standard of truth, capital T truth, because God is capital T truth, and so we are appealing to something that, not only our culture, but really, if we get down to it, ourselves, like we war against absolute truth. Like we want, and that—that's essentially what I was trying to get at with that story with the, um, with the girl saying that about. Pauline writing like I don't like that I don't want that so I'm going to separate myself not see that as authoritative but I will put author I will see authority in other areas of Scripture you know we are in the driver's seat for that um, and so I I wanted to you know clarify just one thing with that and with a quote from one of my favorite theologians he's an existential theologian so some things you wouldn't necessarily want to follow him down but this is just such an amazing quote and so uh, I'll kind of close out some of the authority section uh, on this. So, the matter is quite simple, Soren Kierkegaard. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words of the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Dreadful is it to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. He also said, just that this has nothing to do with this, but he also said the problem with Christians today is that no one wants to kill them anymore. Intense guy. You know, he had a little fire to him. But what an amazing thing, like, that we will use these arguments about errors here, errors there. I've got this verse, you've got that verse. We'll proof text as much as we can, which means just like picking verses just to stab each other, like real no context that we would do that in circles and circles and enter into that labyrinth of theological dialogue to keep ourselves from actually obeying the Word of God. Now, we'll, we'll give lip service and say that's absolutely not what we're trying to do. Uh, but, I mean, we, we almost have to like question ourselves. We have, to, we have to really call ourselves out and say, am I pursuing this Christian scholarship or these debates or these different arguments and things. Am I going to the text of Scripture? Am I going to God's Holy Word just so I can win an argument? I mean, how, how often have we done that? A Rich Mullins quote, and, you know, it's, it's a little loosey-goosey, but, but he says, um, if we were given the Scriptures for anything, it wasn't to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. It's to prove that God is right and the rest of us are just guessing. I mean... We, we have, when we see the authority of Scripture, it puts us in our place. And it's a place we don't always want to be in. Right? We have to recognize that. I don't like to submit to anything or anyone. And God's Word is no exception. No exception. I have to yield and humble myself before God's authoritative Word and say, the problem is here. And I might not understand it. It might be difficult. And I can see a verse here and a verse here and it's difficult and I recognize that and we don't just sweep that under the rug. But we say, God is authoritative and pure and I will submit to His Word because when I do that, I'm submitting to Him. Okay, so that that kind of closes out the section on authority. And then that revelation really, I mean, that's continuing this whole idea from the very beginning that God is seeking to communicate with His creation, His people. He's doing this through the Scriptures, because my own experience... Now, God reveals things to us in various ways. But in these times, He, is, he, is, he has spoken to us, He has revealed things to us through His Son, and the record of that is the, that's the Scriptures. Okay, that, that whole thing kind of comes from the beginning of the book of Hebrews. So. But this, this is what we are engaging in, is that God is communicating to us and, and that if left to my own accord, if I am the definer of things that are true, if, that, if, that's, if I'm in that captain's chair, that I can't interpret these revelations that happen generally. I can't interpret these things. That's why I must appeal to the authority and the rule, the canon, the standard, That's how I understand my experiences. And that's where the existential philosophy that was happening like that, they started moving into experience and the things that we experience. And and some of those arguments are beautiful and and beneficial even, But, but what they can miss the point on is that the way we even understand the things we experience, the spiritual experiences that you have had from your conversion to your being discipled to as you've discipled others or shared your faith. You know, all of those different spiritual experiences that you've had, they are only understood and interpreted when they are interpreted alongside the rule, the standard, the canon of Scripture. That's how we understand them. And that's how we put them in their place. And we can understand them rightly and grow as disciples in what I said at the very start. Devotion to God Devotion to God and confidence in Him. And so that, that leads to the answer to the night's question. Can I trust my Bible? And the answer, yes. But why? Because we can trust our God. That's why. It's not because you've got a really good argument about this verse or that verse. It's not because you, you've studied the Greek or the Hebrew and, and you can translate somebody under the table, which is a weird thing to do. <laughs> not, not because of that. You trust as you go devotionally to the Scriptures and you open it up and you read it to encounter God Himself. The reason you can do that with confidence is because you can have confidence in our God. You see, that's what it it means to come to the Scriptures in faith, trusting in Him. And also know that that is where faith is wrought in us. And so going back to that breakout session, that I thought was so useless. Um, He was doing something beneficial. He was saying that it's not a circular argument. It's a spiritual argument. The Scriptures testify to the truthfulness of God's Word. And we can can take root in that. And we we can trust in that. And so as it testifies to itself, meaning God testifying to Himself, we can trust that because He is trustworthy. So... Um, of course, a million things that we could go into here. Just one one last thing that I'd like to close with. Two verses, since, since I just appealed that it's acceptable to look to the Scriptures to testify to themselves. Um, Isaiah 48. It says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And almost in a an amazing harmony note coming from the New Testament. Christ Himself saying, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. See, this this is the confidence, this is the devotion that should be our objective. And I understand that many of you have have entered into discussions that might be heated about different areas of, of all these things, but is you know really question yourself is my objective devotion to god is my objective confidence in him and ultimately what those things lead to is is worshiping him is that the goal cuz if not i would just caution stop stop it doesn't mean you can't use those arguments or that that, that they don't have their place in worshiping him but if that's not the goal right now for you, as you study the Scriptures it, for you know, duels and fights, walk away from that. Go, go, go Come to His Word anew starting tonight. In a fresh way, come to His Word. And lay down your agenda of battle. And submit yourself to His authoritative Word that will not pass away. Everything we see around us, will pass away. Heaven and earth, the flowers of the field, the grass, and the grass is our flesh as well. Our, our bodies will fade away. And long after we're gone, and your argument is long forgotten, God's Word will stand. And that's what we can trust the Scriptures.